The scripture reading this morning is from the book of Ruth, chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Thank you, Mark, for the reading. Uh, thank you, Jay, for the prayer. Uh, good morning, everyone. All right. I want to welcome Cheryl's family who are visiting. Uh, they're sitting in the back over there. Let's give a warm welcome for our uh, family. And there are also a few others joining us for the first time. Uh, if you're new, please uh, you know, don't uh, hesitate to reach out to one of our pastors or welcoming team members. We'd love to get to know you more. All right, before we uh, dive into chapter three, uh, for the sake of those who may have missed it, uh, let me highlight a few things from last week's message. Uh, last week, we were introduced to Boaz, right? And we said that he was what all of our men should aspire to become. He worked very hard in his young adult years, and by the time he was in his late 30s, perhaps in his early 40s, that would be my guess, uh, as to how old he is in this story, 
but by the time he was, let's say, in his early 40s, uh, he built a substantial farming business that was able to provide for people by giving them jobs. And normally when you work that hard, uh, your employees tend to hate you, but uh, we learn that his employees respected him because he treated them well with honor and dignity. He was also watchful and uh, caring and actively sought out those who might be vulnerable and in need, and that's why Ruth was so confused. You know, she asked, why are you being so nice to me? Right? I'm only a, a foreign woman, uh, a widow. Boaz basically says, Ruth, your character and your reputation precede you. You know, you're dressed in rags. You may smell like the field, but I heard your story, and I know the sacrifices you made to follow Yahweh and to serve your mother-in-law, Naomi. And in my eyes, you are beautiful, and you are a worthy woman. Right? That was Boaz. He's an honorable man, godly man, extremely kind. And we said last week that God used Boaz to extend his hesed love, his covenant faithfulness to both Ruth and Naomi. And as a result, we saw Naomi's heart slowly melting, softening before the Lord. And that's where the story ended last week. Right? Great story, right? Better than K-drama, right? Amen? No? Uh, here's the outline for today, part one. Uh, Naomi's risky proposal. Okay? I mean, it's, it's right before us. Uh, it was just read for you. A proposal very... It, it should sort of read initially very odd, so we'll talk about that, but I want to kind of set it up, all right, before I get to the actual proposal part. Part two, uh, Ruth and Boaz's romantic encounter on the threshing floor. And part three, uh, this is not your typical love story, okay? And so uh, I'll work through these three parts today. Part one, Naomi's risky proposal. Uh, I'm wondering if you would look at this proposal and consider it wisdom or folly, Okay. Is she wise to propose this, or is she being a bit foolish? Well, the first thing we notice in our chapter today is that Naomi's spirit perks up after being reminded of the Lord's hesed love for her in chapter two, okay? So she's kind of going through this transformation. She's no longer uh, the passive, self-pitying idle character from the previous chapters. Something's different about her. And, and I don't want us to overlook this aspect of the story because it's really so easy for us to get stuck in the state of mind Naomi is in here, right? Isn't it true? And unless you realize that God's hesed love is also for you, right? that God is not out to get you, that your life is not hopeless, and that the bitter cup has been already swallowed up by the one who gave his very life for you in Jesus Christ, unless you realize these things, you will remain stuck in your bitterness and in your anger and in your victimhood. And while the roots of this world who have had just as hard a life as you are doing whatever they can to make a life for themselves, you will stay home like Naomi in chapters one and two and wallow in self-pity. But praise be to God, notice Naomi is no longer stuck in that state of mind. She has tasted the Lord's hesed love once again and her soul 
has awakened, and she is now willing to hope and dream again. It's a beautiful picture of transformation. And some of you, I believe, you need to hear that part of the message because you're stuck. And I'm telling you, you don't need to be stuck in your anger and your bitterness and in your hopeless state. There is hope for us. There is mercy for us in Christ. Amen? Have any of you read J.I. Packer's classic book, Knowing God? It's really considered a Christian classic. So if you haven't read the book, that means you're not a Christian. I'm just, I'm just kidding, okay? I'm just kidding. Uh, I remember reading the first few pages as a, as a college student, and one thing that stood out to me at the time, because I was actually living through this myself, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he says in the first few uh, pages, those who truly know God have this great energy for God. For those of you who read it, you remember that, Pastor, right? Remember that, uh, those, that pages. Um, wh whoever really knows God has this great energy for God. But what's the opposite of having great energy for God? Well, the opposite is staying home while others are working the field hard, right? But look at Naomi now. Again, her mind is active. And after assessing the situation, and what is the situation right now in chapter three? It is that there's this godly relative named Boaz. And then you have the daughter-in-law, Ruth, a Moabite widow who doesn't have much of a chance in Jewish society. That's the situation. So she assesses the situation and she devises a plan that would encourage Boaz to take Ruth as his wife. And her plan is risky, but it is a response to the obvious admiration and affection that Boaz has been showing to Ruth for the past several days, maybe even weeks as, as she's working the field. I mean, it's an undeniable thing that he actually has something going for her. And the reason why Naomi shows a sense of urgency here is because, no surprise, the harvest season was coming to an end. I mean, it's not, <laughs> the season is not indefinite. It doesn't go on forever, right? Uh, I learned that barley harvest was in April, May, and wheat harvest was a few weeks later. But that, that comes to an end too. So it's, it's like that within the next few weeks, Ruth and Boaz, they have to part ways. I mean, they're not going to see each other. Ruth, Ruth has no, you know, no work that's going to be available on the field. And so they're going to have to you know, part ways in some way. And so uh, that's the concern. And right? if they just passively wait, right, there's no guarantee that anything's going to happen right? relationally. And Boaz is sort of, you know, he's sort of, he has his own issues going on, um, which we'll talk about a little later more. But, I mean, th this side of Boaz is sort of, at least initially, it, it's, it seems as if he's being a bit passive, although he's not a naturally passive character, but at least when it comes to the pursuit of Ruth, he's sort of like hands off at this point. And that side of Boaz does frustrate me a little bit because if I'm Boaz and I think Ruth is a worthy woman, you know me, right? I'm going to pursue her, okay? I'm gonna be very honest and direct as to my intentions, and I'm gonna pursue her just like I pursued 
Joyce. Okay. Oh, there she is. And if you want to know the full story of how I pursued Joyce, all you got to do is invite us both to dinner one day. And I'll be happy to tell you my version first and then her version. A little less accurate. My version is always right, okay? All I want to say right now is that I liked what I saw, and so I actively pursued her, right? But then I heard that she was dating someone. Oh, my, right? Did that deter me? What do you think? Just a little bit, okay? just a little bit. Uh, long story short, after assessing the situation like Naomi does in our story today, I concluded that he just wasn't the right guy for her. And so I told Joyce that she should break it off with him, right? mainly because he wasn't making his intentions clear and he wasn't giving her any kind of clear timeline in regards to their future together. And honestly, if, if uh, any of you sisters approached me and said, hey, Pastor, what do you think about this guy? You know, we've been dating for like, you know, two, three, four years, he's, but he's not clear about his timeline of marriage. I would say the same thing. I would say, well, ask him. And if he can't give you a clear answer, then break it off, right? He's still acting like a boy. He's not a man yet, right? So after I said that to her, uh, I, I, I told her I'd give her a few months to figure it out and that I would reconnect her, reconnect with her uh, a bit after. And as they say, the rest is history. So why doesn't Boaz act here? I, I think we're given a hint in our story. She's, why, she, why are you glaring at me? Don't glare at me, okay? <clears throat> we're, we're good, we're good. Uh, we, we, we've been married long enough now, okay? Our marriage is not in jeopardy here. Uh, I think we're given a hint in our story, okay? Uh, why is he, why is he you know, not acting well? Simply put, it's because Boaz is an older man, okay? And he wants to give Ruth freedom to choose among the younger men closer to her age. Verse 10 is what gives it away. He says, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness, right, this, that you would consider me, this older man, greater than the first. And what he, what he means by first kindness is most likely the kindness that she uh, expressed toward her mother-in-law, right, Naomi, and cling to her and saying that your God should be my God, right, um, your people, my people, that, that thing. And so she said, uh, he said, you have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And so he, that, that was his main thing. Like he, he, didn't, he didn't feel like it was right for him to just be so forward when there was such an age gap. But because Boaz doesn't take any decisive action toward Ruth, right, other than being extremely like, out of the way, kind to her, right, Naomi, this newly motivated mother-in-law, decided to step in. That's what's going on here. And some scholars say that she was giving rather bad advice. Others say she's being very wise. And after sort of reading both sides, I can understand uh, the arguments from both. But all I can say with 100% certainty is that she is giving risky advice, okay? And I, I kind of lean toward that she's being wise, okay? Um, and, but I say it's, she's giving risky advice because her plan could have easily backfired depending on Boaz's reaction, right? Depending on how Boaz was perceiving 
how this thing playing, being played out. So let me describe the scene, right? Uh, we look in verse one, once again, again, she wants, she wants to be a good mother-in-law, and uh, she wants Ruth to be well provided for, and then she says, hey, Boaz is a close relative. Now, that might not mean much in the Moabite culture where Ruth uh, was growing up in, but it meant a whole lot in the Jewish culture. And I alluded, it, uh, alluded to it in one of our previous messages, but based on Jewish law, just to remind you, there, there, there was a legal obligation placed on the men within the, same, within the same family, right, to fulfill the role of redeeming the marriage of a brother who passed away prematurely without any sons, right? And it originally applied to uh, just the brothers. And so brother had to sort of like take care of their other brother's household. Uh, so technically, uh, Boaz, who wasn't a brother, it wasn't that close, he was a distant relative, Boaz was not legally obligated to do anything here. But it is likely that these laws uh, eventually formed these additional customs that encouraged even distant relatives to consider taking on such a role of what most of you know to be the kinsman redeemer role. Right? The ESV just translates as redeemer, but uh, most of you probably, probably grew up with the you know, a familiar expression that, that he was a kinsman redeemer, okay? So, so that, that concept is what Naomi is, is banking on here. And then she goes on to say that, look, I, I know where Boaz is gonna be tonight. He's gonna be at the threshing floor. And so she basically tells Ruth to go clean herself up, to get her hair done, or to get her nails done, to put something nice on, and to also maybe put some perfume on, right? To kind of make her presentable. Right? And she says, don't make yourself known. I find this to be a bit humorous. Don't make yourself known until he has finished eating and drinking. Right? This kind of <laughs> informs me that she knows men very well. Right? She is giving Ruth some very sound advice. Basically, he's gonna be tired from work, so let him first eat his food. Right? Let him uh, watch the NBA playoffs if the games are on, right, let him finish his wings, drink his, don't disturb him, right? Um, and then, this is where it gets really strange, verse four. Observe where he lies down, okay, go uncover his feet, lie down, and he'll tell you what to do. Really strange. You know, some people think that feet here is a euphemism for sexual contact, but the people I trust do not believe that there's any reason to think that there was an appropriate, like inappropriate uh, sexual contact made in this story, right? And, and I conclude the same. Uh, but that, that's the basic proposal. What do you guys think about this proposal? Right? Right? Do you think it's a wise plan or a foolish plan? You know, honestly, it's not something that I would ever recommend uh, to any of our young women, our, our sisters, right? In other words, you will, never tell, you will never see me tell a sister to go lie down next to a guy smelling nice and looking your best and then say, I'll do whatever you tell me to do, right? Uh, but it's also possible, the more I think about it, that Naomi is, 
maybe, maybe she knows something we don't know, and maybe she's just wiser than us. Maybe she knows Boaz, she's seen him, I mean, she observed him carefully probably, and, and she, she knows, she has a, a fairly good sense of what he's going to do. Um, and maybe her plan was just subtle enough uh, where Boaz wasn't going to feel threatened in any way, right? Uh, and it's true, in the story, Boaz never perceives Ruth to have done anything immoral or overly forward, right? He's not turned off by her actions. Part two, Ruth and Boaz's romantic encounter at the threshing floor. Now, before I comment on the actual romance between Ruth and Boaz here, uh, can we just take a step back and ask the question of where in the world is Ruth's father? Right? Where is Ruth's dad in this story? Right? I mean, is the father not expected to play an important role in the Moabite culture? Right? I mean, if Ruth had a good dad... Making sure his daughter is taken care of, right, and not starving to death. I mean, this is his responsibility. But her dad is nowhere to be found. Maybe he's dead, right, like the other men in her family. Or maybe he just doesn't care. I mean, she's almost starving to death, but her dad isn't there to protect or provide for her. It's strange. What's he doing? He's MIA. We don't know why. You know, as I consider my own daughters, I... I, you know, Lord willing, I want to walk uh, down the aisle with them when it's their time to marry. But I am going to be giving my daughters away in marriage to a man or to, to men who love the Lord. Right? Uh, and if I'm Ruth's dad, right, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to call up Boaz. Right? And I'm going to say, hey, Boaz, let's meet up. No, that's strange to you? I shared more information during 9 o'clock. I'm, I'm debating in my mind whether I should share more. Mm, I think my oldest would be annoyed. Huh? Just say it? Okay, she, I get, she gave me the green light. So please, please, uh, please keep this to ourselves, okay? Even though it's, even though it's being live streamed. <laughs> please keep this to ourselves. Uh, don't be sharing with other people, okay? So like, I have a daughter who's going to graduate from high school soon, okay, and uh, there's this guy at school, at her school, that really, like, is borderline obsessed with her. I don't know what, what's going on with him, you know. Um, he's, he's a nice guy. I'm nothing really against him, but uh, what do I do as a father? I mean, he, he seemed really, like, interested, and so I called him up. I didn't literally call him up. I, I, I contacted him, okay? And I said, let's meet up, okay? So I arranged something. We met up. We met up at the old Toulajour in Centerville, uh, which is now called Mark Bean for some reason. Uh, <laughs> and uh, anyway, we met there for like a good hour. And, you know, he, he took it well. Um, but I, I asked him some basic questions. But th I mean, that's what a father should do. I didn't, I didn't get permission from Sella. Okay, I just, I'm going to meet with, because it's my responsibility as a father, right? And most of you don't like that idea, but that's your problem, okay? This, what, what, I, you know, you've got you to learn how to be a good father, okay? Um, so, like, if I'm Ruth's dad, I'm calling up Boaz, and I'm going to meet with Boaz, and I'm going to say, you know, my, my daughter, 
uh, likes you, uh, do you like her? Right? And if you do, let's, let's talk about the kind of man you are. Right? And my conversation with that other student, it didn't go exactly this way, but it, it covers some of these, these things, okay? So you can imagine this. You know, so what are your core beliefs, okay? Uh, what, what's the gospel, okay? Uh, what church do you attend? Are you a Reformed Presbyterian? Why, why or why not, okay? Explain yourself. Do you believe in male headship? Or are you going to be letting my daughter lead you, okay? Uh, what is your life philosophy? How, what are your future plans, okay? Are you thinking of getting married when you're in, in your, like, 30s or... You know, some guys marry early. Uh, he wanted to be a doctor. He wants to be a doctor. Okay, so I'm thinking, okay, what's schooling going to be like? Okay. So, you know, my basic conclusion was, you're probably not going to get married anytime soon. Look, uh, I, I think there's no, no point in dating right now, right? So um, give, her at least, give her at least a year, right, to enjoy some college. Anyway, that may sound way too old-fashioned for you, but again, it's the right thing to do, and that what you should be planning on doing as well if you have any daughters, okay? Now, in the case of Ruth, she can't really count on her father because he's nowhere to be found, and so the only other option uh, left for her to do is to trust Naomi and to follow her advice, which she does, and she knows it's a risky option, but she's willing to take the risk because she knows Boaz is a godly man whom God has used to provide for her and protect her her family up to this point in the story, right? And so there's a level of trust built in. So let's see how their romantic encounter plays out. Okay, verse seven, uh, when Boaz had eaten and drunk, or not, it doesn't say he was drunk, okay? He says eaten and he drank something, okay? It doesn't say he was drunk. Uh, but it says that his heart was merry, and he went to lie down next to a heap of grain, probably to protect it from robbers, and if you want to know what Mary means, M-E-R-R-Y, all you have to do is look around during cocktail hour during the next wedding you attend. And I, I do want to say that you can get Mary without getting drunk, okay? Uh, so don't get drunk, right? Some of you guys drink too much during these weddings. Don't do that. Right? I'm rather naive when it comes to drinking, I have to say. I, was, uh, I became a laughingstock at one of the more recent weddings, um, someone approached me. I was at the table, just minding my own business, like I usually do, right? Someone approached me and said, hey, Pastor Paul, you want to take a shot together? And so I, I stand up, I'm like, you know, making sure I look okay. I'm, I'm waiting for the photographer. <laughs> it really happened. I was like so embarrassed. Like, oh, you mean that kind of shot? And so once, I, once people realized I was posing for the camera, that's when I became a laughingstock, obviously, right? So just like you're doing now. Just like you're doing now. Uh, so that's verse seven. Verse eight, at midnight, Boaz wakes up. He's startled probably because his feet are cold. And, say, What's, and he smells perfume in the air. And then he sees like a woman lying uh, by his feet. And at that point, Ruth basically makes her wishes known to <laughs> Boaz. Uh, you are the kinsman redeemer. And here's a key line. If you think fondly of me, spread your wings over me. Right? I mean, that imagery is pretty powerful, isn't it? Spread your wings over me. Now, Boaz would have known that the language of spreading your wings over me was 
an expression involving a covenantal commitment to unite with someone in marriage, right? Uh, I believe that was sort of a, a, a com, not, maybe not as common as you think, but it, w- it was an expression that would have been understood that way, okay? Ezekiel uh, 16, 8 has that same expression uh, written to, to describe the love, of, the love that God has for his people. Let me read that portion for you. It says, when I, God, passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. You see, same expression. Now, I don't know what you think of this, but let me just take a moment to give uh, our sisters some, some advice on relationships, okay? I will say this. It, it normally won't turn out so well for you if you approach a guy and practically throw yourself at him, right? Like if, you're, if there's no subtlety <laughs> to your actions, you're gonna turn off a guy very quickly. In other words, don't be so direct and vocal about how you want to so desperately marry him, right? Give him some space and freedom to, uh, to, to take initiative as a man. That's important to men, right? most men at least, okay? Like the real men. <laughs> it's important for you to give them space and freedom to, 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 practice, to exercise that initiative, right? And... As I've been reflecting upon this encounter, I mean, I think, yeah, there's some really strange things about this, but I, I do believe that Ruth's approach is seeking to strike the right kind of balance, okay? Because she basically says, and some of this is implied, you know, Boaz, you have been virtually treating me like a queen these past few weeks, and you've clearly expressed your deep affection for me. Everyone knows it. And I I understand that you may have some serious reservations because of our age difference. And maybe you think I have no interest in you as a result. But if you think fondly of me, spread your wings over me. So she's basically giving giving, giving him rather permission to marry her. She's clear about what she wants but at the same time, she's not forceful, you see, or like aggressive in a way that would turn most men off. And so that's what I'm seeing here. And Boaz, yeah, he, he takes it well. He, he's surprised that Ruth would be interested in him. And basically he says, you're right, <laughs> Ruth, I love you, and I do want us to marry, right? I, I do want to spread my wings over you. But, again, this is a little bit frustrating because Boaz is such an upright guy. Like, he always wants to do the right thing. Honorable man, right? Much better than me or here. But, I mean, uh, but he, you know, he basically says, look, I want to marry you, but there's another guy in the picture, right? There's another guy. He's a closer relative. And this just kind of tells me that <laughs> he was doing his research. Like, he was so interested in Ruth that he did his due diligence to kind of scope out who was, you know, who was the closer relative, right? who was the competition, essentially. And he says, there's one guy that's closer 
to you than me. And so let me first check with him. And if he wants to take you as his wife, then so be it. But if he doesn't, then I will spread my wing over you. Right? That, that's that's how, how it unfolds. And, and you know, he tells Ruth to sleep and leave early in the morning because he wants to protect her reputation. Good man. Uh, and I'm sure Boaz was tempted by Ruth. But in the end, instead of choosing to engage in illicit sexual behavior, Boaz, being a godly man, practiced self-restraint and made Naomi, the mother-in-law, who devised his plan, look like a genius. <laughs> it turns out her plan worked to perfection. Part three, this is not your typical love story. Mainly because Boaz and Ruth are such an odd pairing, right? They're such an odd couple. He was a Jew, she was a Moabite. He was very old, she was young. He was extremely rich, she was dirt poor. You know, relationships like this are not normally meant to work. Most of the time they don't work because there's too many obstacles involved. But the relationship between Boaz and Ruth is so important for us to remember because this odd relationship is meant to remind us, brothers and sisters, of the relationship Christ established with us, his bride. Right? According to this story, Boaz is like Jesus, and so we are to be like Ruth. And like Ruth, we are to come to the Lord and ask him to redeem us, no matter how risky that may seem to us. But the good news is that when we come to him in faith, he promises to redeem us at a great cost. Boaz gave Ruth a job. He gave her food, money, and a married life. Jesus gives us his very own life and every spiritual blessing from heaven. He gives us so much more. Why would Jesus do that for us? Like Boaz, he did not have to make such a sacrifice. He did not have to die. He did not owe us anything, but he did because he loved us. We call that grace. Jesus treats us like Boaz treats Ruth. And like Ruth, once again, we're, we're called to humbly come and to give ourselves to Jesus, our true Boaz, and we're to ask him to be our redeemer, don't you see? There is an element of risk, of course. See, some of you may still be hesitant because there is this element of risk involved and you're afraid. See, when we give our lives to God, we are taking some risk. Right? That's why God calls us to count the cost. Right? It's the what-if questions that often paralyze us, right? What if people start thinking of me less if I give my life to Jesus? What if my friends abandon me? What if my coworkers give me a hard time? What if I lose my job? I've car carved out a comfortable and safe space for me in this world. What if all of that gets taken away? That's the fear we have. And the world considers us foolish 
if we choose to give up these worldly comforts. But brothers, sisters, whatever the world offers us now, don't you realize it will eventually fade? Which is why Jim Elliott, the late missionary, wrote in his diary before he gave up his life on the mission field that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He understood this life very well. You may think that you have to give up so much when you give yourself to the Lord, but the thing is, you will gain so much more in the end, which means the risk is worth taking. We need to be willing to take risks as followers of Christ. We can't be so risk averse, as they say. Some of you may know my youngest, six-year-old, he was doing a really cool thing. Uh, the past few weeks, he was trying to conquer the monkey bars. I was so proud of him. You know, he's like always begging, or not, like practically begging me to take him to the playground every day, right? Him and Carissa, so Joshua, Carissa, they, can we, you know, can you take us to the playground? And so, and the purpose was for them to kind of conquer the monkey bars, especially Joshua, right? Young, young kid. Uh, but that's what boys love to do. They love to challenge themselves, especially physically, and, and do something that would really test their ability. Uh, but this past week, as he was doing the monkey bars, he slipped and he fell to his left side and he broke his forearm, right, both bones. Both bones, uh, clean break. Maybe I should have showed you the x-ray, it's kind of cool. Um, I was shooting hoops. I was being a good dad, shooting. <laughs> he was, I, I, heard these, I hear this different kind of cry. It wasn't his normal cry. It was a more screechy cry. I knew something was wrong. Uh, the rush over, I saw him face on the ground, arm on the ground. Carissa was by his side trying to, I guess, have him get back up. But I saw his arm, and it was clearly broken just by the look of it. So, like, Joshua! Why do you keep breaking your bones? <laughs> all, my, all my other kids are fine, no broken bones. He, this is his fourth broken bone already, right? I'm counting the two bones, right, in his forearm. Uh, collarbone, when he was born. Uh, shin, shin bone, when he came down the uh, slides with sitting on Sophia's lap. Never do that, right? You should never have your infant or toddler on someone's lap going down the slides. Very dangerous. And then this, you know, three and four, right? So I had to rush him. We had to rush him to the uh, urgent care. They said they had no extra machine because staff shortages. So we rushed him to the ER. And then they sedated him, straightened out his arm like violently. <laughs> it's crazy what they do there. And then we saw, we saw another doctor, and he, uh, he said he might need some surgery done. So surgery day is actually tomorrow. Uh, they put some wires in, straighten his ass arm out so the curvature is maintained or else you can't really rotate your arm this way, I guess. Anyway, my point is, I was at his, uh, one of his, so I'm coaching his baseball team. Obviously, he can't play anymore. He was at home. I, I had to go and uh, coach the team that he's supposed to be on. <laughs> and uh, one of the parents, I, I, after I informed them, oh, Joshua broke his forearm. They're like, there was one parent, mom, and moms are great at this, right? They're always trying to be super protective and 
it comes from a good place, but this one, one mom said, oh, all those schools should just get rid of all the monkey bars, right? <laughs> just get rid of all the monkey bars. <laughs> and the, the husband, as well as me, all, basically all the men respond differently. We, we respond like, no, you can't, you can't get rid of the monkey bars. That's, that's the only thing that the boys love to do, right? That's what the boys need. They need an outlet. They need to be challenged. They have to be tested, right? So obviously there has to be a balance somewhere. That's why the you know, husband and wife tend to balance each other out. Um, but, you know, I, I want to raise up my kids to have adventurous spirits. I want them to be willing to take risks, you see. And I have the same desire for my church family as well. I, I don't want any of us to become paralyzed by these what if questions and then become so isolated in their sort of like safe spaces, right? It's overly protective. No, be risk takers. Don't be reckless, but be risk takers. Suffer some pain for the Lord. You grow from it, right? Now, was I heartbroken to see Joshua on the ground? You know, uh, you know, it's like art, kind of like it was it was heartbreaking, but as a father, I'm like, he'll grow, he'll learn from it, okay? He'll become better for it, for enduring the pain and the suffering. A little suffering is good for him. He'll be fine. So there is that risk, right? We have to be willing to take it. Uh, lastly, I want to mention that there's an element of surprise in this story as well. You know, when, <clears throat> when uh, Ruth was about to leave Boaz, guess what Boaz does? He gives Ruth six measures of barley, it says. I had to look that up. How, how heavy is that exactly? I don't know. Six measures. One, one source told me it's 80 pounds. So, I mean, she couldn't have carried it this way. It's crazy. Like, like, probably something like this, 80 pounds. A strong woman, 80 pounds, right? Uh, but when Naomi, when Naomi saw Ruth carry 80 pounds of barley and enter into the picture, it says in verse 16 that... Naomi said, how did you fare, my daughter? This is the worst translation ever in the ESV. You, you know, I think they, they should have done better. How did, who, who says that? How did you fare, my daughter? No one says that, okay? Like, like how did it go? Um, how was your, you know, time with, you're trying to get, you know, express something like that. But I learned that more literally, uh, Naomi responds not with "How did you fare?" My, no, or, or like she didn't, she didn't, she didn't say "How did it go?" It wasn't even that. It was "Who are you? Who are you?" That's what she says. As soon as she sees Ruth, she says, "Who are you?" Right, the same question that Boaz posed to her a few verses earlier, and this. This question of who are you in, in this context, it puzzled translators for many, many years, including the ESV translation committee, since they're asking, why would Naomi ask this question in this moment, right? Does she not know who Ruth is, right? You following? So because it's unclear as to why Naomi would ask such a question, who are you, the, the translation board decided to just go with, how did you fare, my daughter, right? But the, the commentator I've been reading, Duguid, I think he gets it right. I, I, I think I, I, would, uh, I would go with this um, interpretation of what's going on, okay? He writes this. Now, I'm paraphrasing a little bit as well here, but 
He says, this is the question, like this question of who are you, uh, is a question Naomi struggles with throughout the book of Ruth. Like, who is this Moabite woman, right? I mean, isn't she supposed to be an outcast that was predicted to be a burden for me? Right? Isn't that one of the reasons why I didn't want to bring her with me to Bethlehem in the first place? Right? Did I not once say, remember this? Naomi said, I left full, but I have returned empty while Ruth was standing right next to her. Isn't that the same Ruth? But who is she now? Who is she that the Lord is using her to provide for me? Right, not only with an abundant supply of food, but as we will learn later, with this enduring place in the genealogies of Israel through the provision of a son who will lead us to Christ himself. Amazing thing happening here. And I believe that Naomi is asking such an awkward question right now in this moment because she's become so overwhelmed by God's love and care for her. And she's beginning to realize how foolish she has been to question God's love for her in the past. Who are you? What's going on, basically? Now, I, this question reminded me of how God provided manna for his people while they were journeying through the wilderness, right? They saw this unknown bread-like substance falling from the sky, remember? And they basically asked the question, right, not who are you, but what is this? What is this? Like, what's going on here? I can't explain what's happening. How is God doing this? How is this even possible? You know, we ask such questions because we become baffled when God provides in ways we never thought was possible. Have you ever had that experience? When you thought you hit a dead end and all of a sudden God, he does something unbelievable. It's like, how did that happen? What is going on? What is this? Who are you? Whenever God provides for us in such ways, brothers and sisters, we should be surprised by his goodness. We should be amazed by his power, and we should respond to him with hearts of joy and gratitude. But let me also add, we should also repent of the way in which we have grumbled against the Lord and how we have been complaining through much of life. Brothers, sisters, as you further reflect upon the story of Ruth, I trust that your appreciation for God's grace will increase. Please do not be afraid to take risks, especially if those risks lead you to place more of your trust in him. Because as you do so, I'm confident that God will continue to surprise you with his offerings of abundant grace. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, as you remind us this morning that Boaz and Ruth's story is meant to be a beautiful depiction of the relationship you have established with us, may you fill our hearts with gratitude and help us to recognize the work of your divine grace. As we continue to reflect upon the story of Ruth and seek to apply its truth to our lives, we ask that you would soften our hearts as you did for Naomi. 
We ask that you would give us the courage so that we would take risks like Ruth and bless us, Lord, with the integrity of Boaz so that all the relationships we pursue would be characterized by love, selflessness, and a deep commitment to honor you. And as we now offer ourselves to you, may you continue to surprise us with your offerings of abundant grace. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen.